0: Welcome back to the DealMakers podcast show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Again, small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month Free trial by going to NordPass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat, calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So, Go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple, and they give you the all—all all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to basecamp.com/dealmakers forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required, and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DealMaker Show. So we have a very exciting founder today. You know, we're going to be talking about both sides of the table, you know, on the operator side, on the investor side. You know, we're going to be talking about building, scaling, you know, financing, all the above, all the good stuff that we like to hear. And I think that you're all going to find, you know, the story of this founder very inspiring. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Nikita Shamgunov. Welcome to the show. Excited
1: to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So Nikita, so let's do a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up in Russia?
1: That was, uh, that was a lot of fun, actually. And um, if I look back the events uh, of, of my childhood, the memorable ones were kind of the Berlin Wall came down. And that was in the news, right? I was not in Berlin. Obviously, I was in Russia in a, in a relatively small city called Yekaterinburg. But that was, was, was definitely hit the news um, and then, not that event, but time-wise, um, after that, a lot of things started happening. You know, the fall of Soviet Union, uh, the hyperinflation um, in the uh, early '90s, and then just kind of a, a very, very quick transformation from what used to be Soviet Union and planned economy and Iron Curtain to opening up of the country to the world, and that was um, felt both scary and exciting. You know, I was very young at the time, and so my parents kind of, I would say, sheltered me from the from the harsher realities of things. Um, you know, of uh, the economy and hyperinflation and whatnot. But it was certainly a a brand new world um, that we uh, we were experiencing in. And uh, I, I'd say my generation took the full advantage of it. One thing is uh, it, that was there, and it's a similar phenomenon for that of of what I read in in this book, Free Economics was at my high school, and, and, I, and I went to um, an elite math high school that, that's called SUNS, um, whatever that means, which I think stands for Special uh, Scientific uh, and Research Center, something like that. Uh, in that high school, our teachers were university professors. And looking back, I, I realized that the reason we had those, those folks and they were relatively young. They would be like assistant professors. Um, uh, uh, you know, today uh, they were all in their like mid, late twenties, or uh, maybe early thirties. Uh, the reason we had them is because they they needed to moonlight. They they needed to to have their ends meet, and they would go into a good high school with a lot of talented kids, um, and teach them more math, teach them computer science, teach them science, uh, and. That that set the foundation of uh of my early education and interest. And there was a lot of passion towards toward towards math uh during those days. Both my dad and my granddad are mathematicians. And at that time, I thought I'd I'd be a mathematician too. the 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 brand new and exciting world of computer science started to kind of pull me into that universe and eventually uh it eventually that became my life.
0: I mean, obviously, you know, computer science, you know, was a, what ended up taking its scores. Uh, but in your case, you know, like when you moved to St. Petersburg for the PhD, you know, there was like a very interesting shift, you know, there that happened and, and that that got you to land into Microsoft. So, so what happened there?
1: My, my interest in computer science uh, kind of manifested in the desire to participate in programming competitions. And I started that in high school. Um, I was mildly successful. I, you know, never made it into the country level or, or international level. But I continued at it um, at at the university. And there there was a, a programming competition which still exists. It's called ACM ICPC, which I started to participate in, and eventually made it into the world stage. Uh, we we went to um, I think it was Netherlands, and then another time we went to to Vancouver, Canada, and and got. To, to a bronze medal so that interest in programming competitions eventually what pulled me into the computer science uh program so i did my bachelor's in math and master's in, in computer science and the best school in computer science was in st petersburg that there's um, a university in fine mechanics computer science fine mechanics and optics and it's still one of the top schools um, uh, in russia uh, so just kind of staying on that programming competition train uh, and refusing to grow up, I guess, I, I went ahead and joined that school for the PhD program and moved uh, from Yekaterinburg to St. Petersburg. I was doing PhD and working full-time to, again, uh, to, to support myself. A- and some of the folks at that company joined Microsoft. I was referred there. And post-graduation, I, I packed my bags, which I had won, <laughs> so, uh, uh, and, and moved to, to Redmond to work for Microsoft.
0: So when you were working at Microsoft, you know, obviously the idea of going back to school came about, you know, business school. Uh, But when you actually executed on that, you know, you land on business school and you quit the same day. I mean, that's kind of like a a little bit of aggressive there, Nikita. What happened?
1: That was a funny story. Uh, So I was um, at the time, I think it was like about four years. uh, I worked for a very, very capable team inside Microsoft called Microsoft SQL Server. Uh, that's where I truly understood how to build systems and complex systems and databases. I started to get a little bit restless and, and, and trying to figure out what is, what is, what is next, um, for me. Um, and then I was like, oh, business school. That's, that sounds interesting. Um, uh, potentially, you know, uh, people who are good at computer science, but have no idea about business. That's what they do. So I applied and, and, and passed all this like exams, which I think was SAT and whatnot. Uh, and then I joined the business school. I was super excited. I walked in on the first day, um, and my thesis was that I'm going to meet some very, very capable people who are business leaders, uh, and I will learn uh, a bunch from them uh, in addition to, you know, uh, from the program. But as we were going around the table and and sharing our experiences, I realized that the folks were kind of lost. And then I realized that about myself as well, so I was probably lost as well uh in that moment so so I quit the first day and uh um at the time I already had a Facebook offer so I took that offer and flew down to California I basically changed my thesis my thesis became um I'm going to move to to the silicon valley where the mindset and and the entrepreneurial spirit is high um and then I'll meet people uh that I'll be more inspired about uh, and then eventually maybe we'll start a company
0: and actually, you know, like that's what, what ended up happening. Uh, you know, one thing that uh, you found there was that the culture of Facebook was uh, completely different to the culture of Microsoft. So why was that the case? And and what would you say, you know, were the sequences of events that really led you to, to ended up, you know, starting your first business? Because, I mean, they were like, certain things there that got you to start reading essays from Paul Graham and Y Combinator and things like that. So what were the sequence of events there that needed to happen?
1: Yeah, Paul Graham was already famous. I started reading his essays at, at, um, uh, at Microsoft, but the gravity of of that personality and, and the gravity of Y Combinator wasn't really fully understood while I was in Seattle. As I moved down I realized that Facebook was wildly different from Microsoft. Just the pace of everything that was happening, like the clock speed was of the company itself was a lot higher. Uh, Facebook was in the hyper-growth mode. I believe I was either engineering employee 800 or there was a total employee 100 of, of, of 800 and the, the company was was growing rapidly. It It felt like stuff just flying around, people picking it up, getting it done, um, and then that was definitely the move fast, break things era. Um, the mindset of the people that, that, that walked in and, uh, through the door and, uh, Facebook was onboarding everybody in batches that was called bootcamp, um, was also very, very different from what I see at Microsoft. Um, and especially in such an established team, as SQL server, where the pace is slow. The throughput is, defi- is, is okay. Cause that, you know, the team's bigger but the, the product is established and whatnot. Here, you know, lots of new things, uh, lots, lots of focus on building rather than maintaining and whatnot. Um, and that's where I met my co-founder um, with whom we applied to Y Combinator. Um, through that, we, I understood a little better what, what com- Y Combinator really was. Uh, we met Paul Graham, and then we had a tough choice. You know, do we want to leave Facebook? And all this early stock, which was already apparent how valuable that was. Or uh we should um you know stay at Facebook and, and realize that stock, or should we, you know, leave Facebook and and start a company. And we were already inside uh the, the Y combinator, we got accepted. We walk in with Facebook badges, uh and and Paul Graham is looking at us and saying, Well, you gotta get rid of that. Uh and so, and so we did. And so that was. That was a tough. Uh, that, well, the, that was a tough call, but I think it was the right call.
0: So what happened next?
1: So then it was a lot of grind. Uh, I lived in the office. Eric lived across from the office. That was just a, an apartment uh, in San Francisco, uh, right across Costco, 10th and Harrison. Um, we stayed there a while until uh, we started to build our testing infrastructure. Bought a bunch of servers. They were loud. They were hot. So it was impossible to live in the office anymore. Um, it was a lot of you know, like we, we, we have all those like glamorous views sometimes of what startup building is like, and essentially and Facebook, uh, the social network movie, uh, uh, may give you a wrong idea, the wrong idea. But what it looked like is um, a bunch of folks um, would, would sit down in front of their computer and headphones and write code, um, you know, day in and day out, uh, hours, uh, hours and hours through the day. I think we did a lot of things right and i think we got a few things wrong um i think long story short uh uh, that was the company that became single store is now a unicorn company uh it makes close to 100 million in revenue i believe uh and uh growing really fast it's on the trajectory to go public uh there's all these billboards and one-on-one the timing of that is is uncertain because that that you know nobody's going public right now but um, it certainly is getting yeah. to a position to to do so
0: and what ended up being the uh, business model of MedSQL? How does the company make money?
1: Yes yeah, so th- and, and, and that's uh, that's really what what's so interesting uh, and now that I'm in venture, I'm thinking about those things um, a, a lot because whatever model you choose, and I'll explain what the model of medSQL kind of is and was comes with 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 a particular with a particular territory and, and a particular way of, of generating business, uh, single store, you know, we renamed them to single store because over time it wasn't it was not longer in memory and it was not longer just SQL, so we were just basically our our name was misrepresenting what what we were and so we changed it to single store. The business model is uh, and it's an enterprise focused company with average sales price um, in the high tens uh, low hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and it finds its customers by by establishing what is called an enterprise marketing uh, which is a combination of you know ad spend and account account based marketing and uh, uh, attending enterprise events collecting small number of high quality leads pushing those leads through the process through the funnel and that revenue comes on the other end of it and so you end up um, depending on the efficiency of this uh, of this enterprise account acquisition, the revenue scales with big step increments, right? Because every deal is like I don't know, hundred thousand dollars to dollars, and especially the expands could be could be very material. But it also comes with the with the high customer acquisition costs and relatively long sales cycles. So you don't need a lot of those deals to build uh, a significant business, but those deals are hard to get. And uh, it, it takes a lot of energy and, and then push of the company to uh, to keep growing in the high pace.
0: Got it. Now, now in this case, you know for the company, how much capital that you guys raise in total?
1: I need to check, but it's in the in the three hundreds, you know, three hundred millions range. And especially the later uh, the later rounds are all hundred million dollar plus. Um, they are what is called like mezzanine rounds. It's the round that you, you get mostly to fund your sales and marketing uh, to keep the growth. And, and the bigger your base is, right? They, uh, the, the harder it is to grow because now if you wanna to grow to hundred percent, now you need to add, you know, it took all that time for you to get to hundred million. And now if you wanna keep growing at a high, very high, high pace, like you now only have a year to add another $100 million so it's 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 an expensive proposition, but that's what the name of the game is uh to to building a um a high quality enterprise business now for you,
0: you know as part of this journey, you know you started as the CTO and then you eventually transitioned to the CEO role I mean that's not a that's not an easy, an easy thing uh, and in fact, you know many you know great cTOs they're not good you know when it comes to the business side of things so how was that? You know, uh, transition period for you and 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 how hard it was.
1: So now that I'm, I'm kind of see having a, a broader visibility of, of of other companies, I I tend to agree. The CTO to CEO transition is rare, um, and in fact, product to CEO or marketing to CEO or sales to CEO, I I, I kind of see more of that. Um, sometimes general manager to CEO, general manager trained by a bigger company, obviously. I, I see those transitions um, much more frequently than the CTO to CEO transition. Depending on the circumstances of why um, you might want to um, uh, have this decision, so let's um, that could be different for for a particular CTO that that sees it as uh, as the next step. The mechanics were the following: I had to make sure that my product and engineering team were are absolutely intact and humming. And that required me to have leaders that run product and engineering. And then I forced myself to, to shift my focus completely to go to market. So basically, trust that the product and engineering are, are, are working very well uh, and trust the leaders. And of course, you interact with them uh, very, very frequently. But despite the fact that the core skill set is in the product and engineering, Basically, shift the focus into go to market and go to market completely. At that time, they were, you know, there were two major problems in in front of of Men's Equal. One was, well, we didn't have that much cash in the bank, so we needed to raise uh, uh, cash. And you raise cash because you grow. And if your growth slows down, then raising becomes really, really hard. Uh, so we're we're in that situation where you know we had time to demonstrate that growth. But it wasn't a lot of time, um, and the specific thing that I did is, um, and and that's like a hack, uh, is to go to your existing customers and ask for more money, and and obviously for those that that you have relationships with, you might feel a little scared, but at the time that was the right answer, um, and so I did, and they and they gave us and they gave me the money, and they didn't even think that that hard. And so that was kind of a revelation. So we, we were either potentially undercharging or, or the other revelation is that if you have a good relationship with your customer, then they will give you money uh, if, if you ask. So, so that, was, that was cool. That was, that was learning. And that allowed us to demonstrate almost 100% growth uh, uh, in a year. And we raised a, a round from Google. So that was one, um, and that's how we solved the, the, uh, the money problem. And the second uh, business uh, problem that was in front of me was that the, that the whole business was transitioning into SaaS and cloud. And, and MemSQL at the time was a hybrid offering. You know, it had an on-prem offering it had a cloud offering, and the checks for the on-prem offerings were higher than the checks for the cloud offering. But it was clear, it was already clear at the time that that's where it's heading, it's heading to the cloud uh, to, to all managed offerings. And so now looking back, it's like, okay, of course, like who, who cares about on-prem? Nobody cares about on-prem, everybody cares about cloud. So that transition turned out to be harder than I thought. I thought it was, oh, it's just code or it's just technology. But turns out um, having a SaaS company is an architectural change both in the product, but also in the DNA of your company. You know, in one world, you don't have DevOps. In the new world, you have DevOps uh, and SREs. In one world, you care about uh, you know, installation, um, and then you support that installation with your, with your sales engineers. Uh, in the other world, that is given. You push a button, and you get it. And so, and so the composition of your, uh, of your company is different. And you start with your management team. One of the one of the books, and I was voraciously reading at the time, uh, one of the great books I read uh, was Only Paranoid Sur- uh, Survived by Andy Grove, where Intel was going from memory to CPU, and Andy was coming into his management team, looking around the table and realizing that he doesn't have software people on the staff team. And then uh, once the decision of going hard off the CPU was made, he had to change his management team. And then such people changes are always hard, right? Because, you know, somebody could be, you know, in that case was a hardware, you know, memory expert and the, the new DNA should be software expert. And you need to, to forge new partnerships um, with software companies. And before that you had to forge company uh, partnerships with, with hardware companies. So in very, very similar process when you transition your company from on-prem into the cloud. Your partnerships are different. Your team DNA is different. Your staff, your staff team has to be different. And it took longer. It took longer. It took single store longer than I thought. I thought it would be like a quick one year transition, but it took years. Uh, Today, single store is decisively a cloud SaaS company. But again, it took a long time to get there.
0: So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute. But if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman. Not no, 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 Tom Chris. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every sales situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's... Asynchronous, I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is Trywingman.com ncom is just the wingman your sales needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high-growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast-growing business. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers. To book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. Now, obviously, it sounds like you were doing the right things because I mean you took the company from 7 million to 40 million. But at what point, I mean, things were working out the way that you, you know, had hoped for. So at what point do you realize, hey, you know, maybe it's time to take a look at what's next in and how do you end up landing on the other side of the table as an investor
1: yeah great question so at some point i hired a co ceo at a single store and i was looking for president to to run go to market so so i i spent a good amount of time nerding on go to market and um uh, driving the revenue up and then i realized i also need a part a go to market partner and I was looking for president, but ended up hiring a co-CEO um, and, um, and, and, a, and a great leader, Raj Verma. Uh, so we, we partnered up and then I shifted my focus back. So from go to market, uh, back to product and engineering. And in there, I realized that I also need to bring a new leader and, and, and brought a chief product officer. So that was the first time in, my, uh, in 10 years that my calendar emptied up. And of course, as a founder, I, I, I knew that, you know, uh, it's only a matter of time. It's like start creeping back up. And, and as a founder, there's so many things uh, that you can, you can do that are high leverage to your business. But it also had been uh, almost 10 years by then, nine years. Um, and I was craving to, to, to get to, to a certain amount of breadth. Because um, when you build a company, you're looking at the world through, this, through the keyhole of uh and what everything that's surrounding you is 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 your company and your team and 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 whatnot Uh, your team obviously gives you a ton of leverage but you're missing on the breadth because uh basically it's your technology your ecosystem your customers and your competition so and you live in this world uh day in and day out versus my thesis was uh, that as you go into venture, you will see much the world from a much broader angle. And you see a wider set of technologies, um, and you'll have an opportunity to 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 learn some of them deeply. And that's certainly delivered. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Vinod funded MemSQL, um, and Kosla Ventures was instrumental through the the CTO to CEO transition and basically uh, getting the company into the, the next rounds of funding. And and through that, the relationship got stronger and stronger and stronger. So um, so Vinod invited me to the table. Um, and um, so I decided to join Kostla uh, Ventures as, uh, as a partner. So obviously
0: here you are now, you know, in Kostla, Uh And, you know, it's a, different, it's a different angle, right, on the way that, that you're seeing things. And I'm sure that you've had the opportunity to learn a lot, you know, because you've had you know, a bunch of investments, you know, about eight investments that, that that you've done. But I guess now, you know, that you are in Kosla, how do you think about categories and then also category winners? You know, I'm sure that, you know, you've been able to really have an insight, you know, into and an, an, a court side ticket, you know, on what it looks like, you know, when it comes to pattern recognition.
1: Yeah, definitely. There's many ways. Um, and that's the beauty of a venture. There are so many ways to look at the world, and, and one of those ways is um, splitting, um, and I'm on the enterprise team, basically, uh, uh, working with with founders, with enterprise founders, with a lot of kind of business-to-business, or business-to-developer, or B2C-to-B type, type companies. The way to look at this world is you can split it into categories, and so in, in like database category, there are operational databases and then there are analytical databases or data warehouses. Um, and in each category, there are typically one, two, three, four category winners. And in the modern day and age, the number of real winners is like one or two in every category. And if you squint at the world and you start seeing it, not, not necessarily just in enterprise software, but everywhere, you start seeing you know, one or two winners in every category, and then either a lot of nothingness or like a long tail of, of products and companies that don't each make a ton of money. And in software, that's even more pronounced uh, than in the real world. Uh, you know, in the real world, it's like you know, Pepsi-Cola and Coca-Cola, right? and Coca-Cola is like 50%, Pepsi-Cola is another 25 and then it's like a long tail of stuff, but none of them is gigantic. But in software, it's worse. In, in, in software, is, there's is a winner, there's an Uber, there's a Lyft and then there's just nothing. There is iPhone, there's Android, and then there's nothing. And so what this means for venture, uh, and there are particular reasons for, for this dynamic in the technology world, and that reason is mostly because of the, the incremental cost of an extra copy of software or service is zero, right? And so once someone, someone is winning, they can suck all the oxygen out of the category. And, and, and kind of completely proliferate and dominate the category. And, and there is a book that's called Play Bigger about creating new categories that talks about, about the dynamics in, in category definition and in category domination by technological products and companies. Um, and so once you take that lens on the world, the question is, you know, is it a category leader? And is, this an opportunity, is there an opportunity to become a category leader? Always, always comes in. And usually every now and then there's also uh, a technology wave that is coming in and, and sweeping through all the categories and giving you know, our world, the, the world of entrepreneurs, an opportunity to redo things from scratch. And previously that world was cloud, previously that world was mobile, previously that world was social, and then you know, previously that world was like the internet. And then again, periodically, either a new category gets created, cloud or mobile or whatever, and it comes either a certain technology or or uh, or innovation or disruption that that really uh, gives you an opportunity to change the architecture of each category. And once you change the architecture, it's a new product can be built. And if I think what's kind of exciting uh, is there's always something like this, like this technology platform transitions. And we're in the dawn of the next one, which is AI and large language models, which I think will will architecturally change uh, a whole basically every category. each incumbent either takes advantage of this or will be disrupted by something that that puts this AI capabilities in the center of of the product so that's that's super exciting
0: now, in your case, you know you're now at uh, Kosla. But you're also, you know, working, you know, on Neon, right? So how does the idea of Neon come about? And and I mean, obviously, in this case, it's a little bit different to single store because rather than starting, you incubated, you know, Neon, you know, as part of, um, you know, the Cosla, you know, uh, endeavor that you're that you're taking on and that you've taken on and. And and how did that come about? I mean, it's a little bit different of a journey here, you know, incubating and 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 bringing it to launch. So tell us about this.
1: Yeah, starting incubating is different, and 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 obviously I had an opportunity to do either here. Um, one of the uh, competitors for single story Snowflake, um, and Snowflake was uh, an incubation from uh, a firm from a venture firm called Sutter Hill Ventures, uh, and this particular individual called called uh, Mike Spiser. and through that competition. I, I learned, and obviously Snowflake is much bigger than Single Star. Through that competition, I learned uh, about about some of the incubation playbooks. Obviously, observing from the outside in. But recently, I actually uh, you know met Mike and we sat down and we had a conversation uh, about incubations as well. So there is a particular playbook. Uh, if you go online and Google Mike Spicer incubation playbook, you will you will find um, some information about it. Uh, and the shiniest incubation out of Sutter Hill is Snowflake. I actually thought about this idea and this company, incubation or starting, um, doesn't matter for for about five to seven years, at least five. And 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 I was finding myself in a, in a similar place as um, I don't know Tony Fadell, as he was thinking about building Nest thermostat, but he was busy. He was busy building iPod and then iPhone. So obviously Tony was on the on the journey of of, of changing the world with Apple but he had this idea about the Nest thermostat on the, on the back of his head, and he was hoping that somebody will go and build it, but no one did. And so with Nian, I, ha- I was in a similar boat. I was thinking about, oh, you know, unlike this um, enterprise focus uh, uh, of single store and, and chasing scale-out workloads, like big-scale workloads, which bring a lot of dollars, but there are not as many of them, can we build a, a developer-first technology that people start building their applications with, and I couldn't I couldn't build it at uh, a at single store because it just didn't make sense for single store to do that. Um, the architecture of the product and the company was already set, and with Neon, it's another database company, but um, uh, uh, you know the architecture of the product, but also the architecture of how it goes after uh, after its users it, it is very very different. And it was, um, you know, again, it was impossible to to change that at single store. So I walked in into Coastline and said, Vinod, we should incubate this. Um, and, and and Vinod is like, yeah, you know, what do you need? And just a, a few months later, I put together first a slide deck, then a team. The difference between starting and incubating is when you incubate, you you can really engineer uh, your your founding team. And in the process of that engineering of the founding team, you have the, the power of the venture firm behind you. Uh, and that comes down to recruiting, that comes down to continuous debate about, you know should we do A versus B versus C and how? And you also have a brand behind you. So engineering the, the company DNA, um, and, and Vinod likes to say that the team you build is the company you build, not the other way was our kind of joint uh, effort and joint endeavor in the beginning in the early, very, very early stages of the company. In return, uh Kostler Ventures has an unfair ownership compared to all the other funders uh, into the company. And and that's what the trade-off of, of the incubation uh, versus starting um versus starting is. Since Neon raised $54 million, um, you know, Kostla put five initially um and now the company has raised uh you know 54 million dollars from you know Coslow Founders Fund uh Aladgil, um General Catalyst uh and GGV and and each one of those uh investors and and a long tail of angels as well and each one of those uh investors is fantastic and and bringing a lot to the table but again the original kind of hatching the company and you know, engineering the company DNA uh, was happening here at Coastal Ventures.
0: So Nikita, imagine you go to sleep tonight, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Neon is fully realized. What does that world look like?
1: First, um, every app in the world needs a database, and it's a no-brainer and no-regret move to create that database on Neon. And so, what is Neon? Neon is serverless Postgres. Uh, Postgres is that you know very popular database technology that existed for, for many, many years that is incredibly popular in developers. And outside of the top five databases in the world, Postgres is the only one that's growing. So everybody else is shrinking. their are mindshare and, and market share. So MySQL, Oracle, SQL Server, those are the top three, then Postgres, then Mongo. Out of the top five, only Postgres is growing. And Postgres doesn't have a home. Like there's no company that's behind Postgres. So it's kind of like Linux. It's a truly community-led effort. As a matter of fact, it's even more decentralized than Linux. So Linux has Linus, uh, and Postgres has a, a group of committers that are decentralized, and you know they're making decisions of what goes in and what goes out. And the developer experience uh, is what makes that a no-regret move to take your Uh, when you need a database uh, to go and create uh, one on Neon. And that's a combination of how easy it is, what the economics are, how how cheap it is. Well, not necessarily cheap, but like how economical it is, how convenient it is, and how reliable and robust it is. You also might be thinking, you know, we had Git as a source control system, Um, but it is an absolutely no regret move to put your Git repo on GitHub right now. Right. And so this is what we're building. Uh, we're building a GitHub like both experience, convenience uh, and kind of economics of putting your Postgres workloads on the, on, on the end. Um, and it has been grow, you know, doing very, very well. Not only we raised $54 millions in in 16 months, but, you know, raising this much money is only possible if you demonstrate interaction. Uh, so there's already 11,000, 11,500 as of today uh databases on the platform, it's growing rapidly, lots of partners are coming on board. So unlike single store, we're having this kind of groundswell coming in. There's a big question how much money we'll be able to generate, but we have so much cash and and so much growth. So we can stay in that state for a long time to just kind of proliferate around the world. Um again, driving towards that kind of GitHub-like vision of becoming the default platform. Uh For Postgres workloads to start, but then for every database workloads in the future.
0: Nice. Now, obviously here we're talking about the future. So now I want to talk about the past and learning from it. So if you were to go into a time machine and uh, let's go, you know, bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that moment that, you know, you were thinking about starting this. If you could go back and give yourself, I mean, start starting single store, sorry, your previous company. If you could go back and and give that younger self a piece of advice for launching a business, what would that be and why? Given what you know now,
1: I think the hardest lesson of single store was building hybrids versus building the future. So I, I think that you know eventually we we found ourselves realizing that the business is in the cloud um, and the hybrid and the on-prem part of the business. Um, is more of a liability than an asset. But we had to treat it as an asset because most of the revenue was there. Um, And and that transition is a a really, really tough transition. You will either stay forever hybrid, and that's the right thing to do. But in technology, it rarely is. Once the technology gears shift, you find yourself in this like absolutely new world. And so you don't wanna find yourself selling pagers in the age of iPhones. And in every category there, you have your own pagers and you have your own iPhones. And, and it means yeah. something different uh, for every category and for every product that you're building. Yeah. I mean, the, the biggest, the biggest realization is, is to build new and build the future. Be uncompromised on the purity of what you're building. You may get the future wrong. You may get the timing wrong. Uh, but if you want to succeed in it in a very, very big way, you got to build the future. And and kind of only the future, and the rest will kind of um, you know pull yourself if you if you get the fu- if you got the future right, and if you execute you know kind of relentlessly, if you do that, you're not wasting time in various hybrid architectures, and you're not building transitional technology. You're building the future technology. You're building Teslas. You're not building Priuses in a way. Um, and and numerous examples I can name where where this approach is the right approach. And because the world is so big, there, are you know, they're they are counter examples for that as well. I think it's just it's a lot more fun to build the future too.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Now, for the people that are listening, you know, that will want to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so?
1: So Nikita at CoastalVentures.com, as well as Nikita at Neon.tech uh, are the the best ways to 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 get me. Uh, I'm also on Twitter. Yeah, I'm also on Twitter. So, so do follow me on Twitter. DM me on Twitter. DMs are open.
0: And what's the handle on Twitter?
1: Uh, Nikitabase. So it's like a combination of, uh, of of my name and the recognition that I spent the last 15 years building databases.
0: Love it. So Nikita, thank you so, so much for being on the DealMaker show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you.
1: Really happy to be here. Thank you for, for great questions. If you like the show, make sure that you hit
0: that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic.